Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see all of you today. Boy, I'd come into a place like this on a Sunday, and it's thrilling just to be able to be a part of a group of people who love the Lord, come here to worship, and knowing that even after a week like this last week, I, re I know with many of you, this week was, I don't know what happened. It was just a stretch for many people for many reasons. God's taken our, our church, and we were scattered all over the community uh, serving in a variety of places. At the same time, there were several that were facing uh, hardships and difficulties and, and uh, others, whether it comes to health, whether it comes to family matters, whether it comes to employment, it just felt like, wow, the pot was full this week of a lot of things. I often find that as I study through a text of Scripture and teach through things like the book of Ezra, like we're doing now, that God allows us to live a book. I often ask the Lord for that, just help me to understand the gravity of a book when I'm studying through it so that we, I can learn what it is you would have for me so it's, it's not just a document of old, but it's something that I can understand in the now of how you were consistent in, in Ezra's life and in the life of those people, and you're still the same God today. And so this week as we study in the book of Ezra, we'll be in chapter 8 if you want to get in your Bibles there, but Ezra is a great man of faith who's going to face a crisis. And what do you do when you face a crisis or when you have a time of need? As, as New Testament Christ followers like us, what are we instructed to do when we face a need? Well, we are instructed to cast all your cares upon Him for He cares for you. We know that we can come to the throne of grace at any time we have a need and God meets us there with grace and mercy. We know that we are not to be anxious. We are not to worry because our God is is in, in control of all things, and we know it, but we, we know it intellectually, but sometimes it's hard to settle that in our heart. And so we're instructed to be anxious for nothing. But by everything, in prayer, with supplication, with thanksgiving, to let your requests be made known unto God. And then what God, what God does is awesome, because then God provides that perfect peace that passes all understanding, and He's the one who keeps our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus and he reminds us consistently as we bring our prayer life to him, he reminds us of the victory that we have in Christ. He reminds us of his truth, of his word. He reminds us of his, of his consistency, consistency through the ages so that we know that God is trustworthy and he is our provider and he protects. And we come like Ezra. It's now 60 years removed since the temple construction was complete. Remember when the book started, God stirred up a king's heart who wrote a decree giving people permission to go back. The Jews can go back to Jerusalem to rebuild a temple that had been destroyed. Zerubbabel is a man who rose up that God used in leadership and he led an entire delegation of about 50,000 people back to rebuild. Well, they get the construction project all complete eventually. And now we're in a, a huge time span has lapsed. 60 years approximately, a new king, a new administration in the secular world is now in charge. And now this king has given another written opportunity, a letter to Ezra, giving him now permission to go back and take whoever wants to go. Whoever of the Jews that are in Babylon now who've been in this exile period, any of you that want to go back, you're more than welcome to go back. And so Ezra, the priest, the scribe, he's going to go back and establish temple worship and get things cleaned up because word has come to him, things have gotten out of hand. So he's going to go back to get all this stuff put into order. 
And Ezra, as he described that, I love the phrase that he uses this over and over in his book. He describes how the good hand of the Lord was upon me. It was the good hand of God that stirred the heart of the king to give the letter in the first place. It's why we learn in Scripture that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns that heart whithersoever he will. And so this king now gives this written decree. But God also made provision, and by the good hand of God, provision was now made for all of the things they need to make this big journey. It's a five and a half month long journey to go by foot all the way from where they are back to Jerusalem. But not only do they get the provision for travel, but all the provision necessary when you get there to establish the worship. So it's gold and silver, it's all the the dishes and all the, the candlesticks, it's all the stuff required for temple worship to be the way it's supposed to be. And not only that, an immense amount of resource to be able to buy um, the livestock or the sheep and the goats and the calves and the things that would be offered as sacrificial offerings to the Lord. Everything that was needed. So they get to see the, the faithfulness of God. Great songs that we sang today, just the reminding us today to be full of gratitude that we come to the Lord with thanksgiving, even in the midst of trouble. And God brings this incredible peace that passes understanding. And that we get to experience the faithfulness of God and this good hand of God that is upon our lives because we learn that it is the Lord Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father upholding us. We are upheld by the right hand of the righteousness of God. The Lord God Himself holds us in His hand and His hand is upon our lives. And His good hand is upon us. So the provision, the protection, the things that we need, God knows. And sometimes we, we may put things into a need column that God does not place in the need column. And so God then teaches us some things of how to wait and how to be still and how to be in a position of need. And what do we do? Here's the question that we face this morning. is What do we do when we face a crisis or we are in time of need? Because that's the problem. Ezra has a crisis. And here's the crisis. Ezra chapter 8, verse 1. These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes. In the following verses, the next 13 verses, is a list of names, heads of household that went with Ezra. It's interesting always when God chooses in the pages of Scripture to record names. Names matter because it's every individual and household represented that is recorded in eternal scripture, that they responded to the opportunity to leave Babylon and go to the place where God's name dwells. These are people that are not ashamed to be associated with God, certainly up for the the task in front of them, and now they are responding to the Lord. And God records their name for us. These were head of households, so it ends up being fathers with sons, This is fathers with their brothers and their brother's sons. So you see this kind of head of household terminology. Every tribe, I believe, was represented here. And quite frankly, when you observe, you'll see the children's names or the heads of these households. It was also their relatives that went back in the first delegation. Now, I'm not going to teach on much of this this morning, but there's something to be noted here. Moms and dads in this room, your faith and your fellowship, it matters. When you choose by faith to leave Babylon, 
the place of the world, the place of exile, and you choose to be where God's name dwells, and you abide in the Lord, I'm telling you, the discipleship that takes place in your home is critical. Your children observe this. They see where you abide. They see where your heart is. And here's what happens. You now see a delegation goes all these years before, and now here comes their children doing the same thing. They want to be where God's at, not over here in exile. Is that a guaranteed recipe? Well, no, of course. Every child has to make a decision of faith to follow after the Lord, but I know as a parent, I don't want to be the stumbling block that my kids have to stumble over me to get to Jesus. In Ezra chapter 8, verse 15, Ezra now gets everybody together to, to surmise the situation. He said, Now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. Now, does anybody remember anything else that's amazing that happens in three days' time? It's, anytime you see the phrase three days in the Bible, it's a death-to-life experience. It's a moment of supernatural grace is going to need to be imposed here, just like the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ezra's going to need resurrection power. Something big's going to need to happen. He looked among the people and the priest and found none of the sons of Levi there. You're like, well, big deal. There's 12 tribes. He's got 11 for 12. Good numbers. Problem. The Levites are the ones who are supposed to be the middle management, if you will, in temple worship and service. So you have these groups of serving... The priests who are from the tribe of Levi, and we have priests, so we have listed here, the priests showed up. This call and the opportunity, the free will, anyone that wants to go back can come. The priests showed up, and many people showed up. But we're missing a group of Levites. This is critical. The Levites were the ones that in the temple worship are going to prepare the offerings and the sacrifices. They, they have some serving responsibilities in terms of taking care in the management and the upkeep of the temple itself. There's another group called Nethanims, which the name means simply servants, critical to this ministry as well, and they are also from the tribe of Levi. The Nethanims, when they would serve, are kind of that behind-the-scenes menial task. Somebody has to go get water. Somebody has to muck out the stuff because we're bringing animals in here for sacrifice and it gets messy. Somebody has to deal with all of the menial tasks day to day, and they were called nethanims. We have a problem. We are about to head off on a five-month journey with incredible resources to establish temple worship, and we have no Levites and no nethanims. They did not respond to the opportunity. So what does Ezra do? He said, I sent for, and he gathered up some leaders, and he said, I also went for some men of understanding. So he gathered 12 men, 10 leaders and two men of understanding. In verse 17, he gave them a command. He said, and I gave them a command for Edo, the chief man at the place, Casiphia. And I told them what, what they should say to Edo and his brethren, the Nethanim at the place, Casiphia, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. So the problem, we have no Levites, no Nethanim. Gather up some men who will now go to this city or this, it's kind of a rural community, but go to Casiphia. The head chief there, his name is Edo. 
and check in with Edo and let him know we have need for the service of the house of God. We need some Levites and we need some Nethanims. We need some servants. So he sent these guys for this purpose. Now, to back up from this, in considering the problem, a question we have to ask is, how come the Levites didn't show up to the announcement like everybody else? Seems like everybody else seemed to know that we have this free will opportunity to go back and worship, but the Levites didn't show up. The servants didn't show up. What happened? It's funny how God records things so we can see the details, but this place called Casiphia means Silver Streets. So you find now your servants are hanging out on Silver Streets and would rather hang out on Silver Street than they would go back and serve in the temple. The Levites are a unique group of, of the tribe of Israel because the Levites did not inherit any land either. Of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Levites were the only ones that did not inherit land. Their inheritance was the Lord Himself. They were the ones serving in the temple. The priests, the Levites, the Nethanims, that was their tribe. Our world is the temple world, and they don't inherit any land. But now they're hanging out in Babylon, and you know what? In this community we have, we kind of got a good thing going on here. And they enjoyed Silver Streets, and they're hanging out in Silver Street. And so now this command comes to Edo. Edo, we need men to come and serve as servants in the house of our God. Well, this can be obviously likened into church. It can be in to any one of us. The call goes out to minister, to serve. And in local church life, it takes everybody to serve in one way or another, and we don't all serve in the same way. We can't all serve at the same speed. We can't all commit the same number of hours per week. We serve in different manner and mechanism. And praise the Lord, we're so different. And that's so wonderful because God is so creative that He would engift each person in the church uniquely so that the church can grow because if everybody was just like me, we'd be in big, big trouble. But we're not. Instead, God diversifies our church to have all these different engiftment and talents and skills and even time and availability and even diversifies us to the place of capacity which is wonderful because some of us physically cannot do as much as others. Whether it's health, whether it's age, whether it's time, whatever the case may be, we are all in a different spot. However, God designed the church to work together as a unit with every part contributing its part, whatever that part is. And whenever there's a person in the body that is, or person or persons in the body that aren't contributing a part, well, then the body's not functioning the way it was intended to function. And we all recognize this. Any one of us know what it's like to have an ailment in your body and something in my body's not working right. And when it's not working right, everything's wrong. <laughs> I feel sick, I feel weak, I can't function the way I should function. There's always something that's not quite right. Well, you watch this, in, a, in Paul describes this in the book of Ephesians as he describes the church. And he said, as the church works from whom the whole body, in Ephesians 4.16, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the ever effective working of which every part does its share. 
causes what? Growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. When every part is doing its share, you see the body grow. Well, this is exactly what's happening in Ezra's day. He's missing a component. Now, what do you do? If you're the priest, the scribe, you're in charge of this delegation going back to set up temple worship, do you just pack up and go anyway and say, well, I guess we're just going to go without the Levites. If they're not going to come, we just can't go. That's not an option. When they arrive, they will not be able to function as they were designed to function. And I was meditating on that this week, just thinking about the volume and scope of opportunities that our church is granted. It takes everybody, hands to the plow, all the time to be able to do what God calls us to do. We ask God to open doors of opportunity for us in our community. Wow, those doors fly open all over the place. And quite frankly, we're having to filter through the requests and the needs and the opportunities and say, we don't have the people for that right now. Well, what do we do? Just blow off everything like it's no big deal and that need in our community, we just say, well, forget it. We can't meet that. Well, instead, why don't we just go to the Lord and say, Lord, we need laborers. Here's what I watch how Jesus handled this. Jesus had 70 disciples that he was going to send out on a missionary journey in Luke chapter 10. And the reason he sent them out two by two as they went was because Jesus is about to go to those villages and do some miraculous work and do the gospel ministry. But he was going to send some forerunners in there. And here's what he told these guys when they would go in. He told them, in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, that the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out these laborers. We need laborers. I say that to us today. If we're in Ezra's day and we seem to lack Levites or lack Nethanims and servants and people to fill certain slots of things in the church, outside of our church, in community, what do we do? We go to the good Lord God who has His hand upon us and ask, Lord, we need Your help. When we need help, you go to the one who can help. Is God going to provide that need? Yes, at God's pace, at God's time. But do we sit still and do nothing? No, in this particular case, Ezra gathered people together and said, go get them. We need to go pursue to find out where the Levites are. We have to have Levites to go forward. So this isn't just a go into the prayer closet and pray and we do nothing else. No, this is pray, trust God, and move your feet at the same time. The same way that Jesus sent these guys out. Now watch the fruit of what happens. Then Ezra chapter 8 verse 18 says this, Then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding. What a gold mine. Not only did God provide them Levites, but a man of understanding... And this guy's name is Sherebiah. He is a son of Levi. And they brought his brothers and his sons as well. Eighteen men come along with this dude. A man of understanding is someone who is savvy in the Scripture. He can read the Scripture and then give a sense of the reading. Here's what's awesome. God made a provision with a guy they really needed. It's going to be clutch because he's going to help get the Levites organized but in the next book, the book of Nehemiah, when they're building the walls and getting all that done, Sherebiah, the man of understanding, is one of the men who stand up with Ezra to read the Scripture and give a sense of the reading to the people. 
God provided not only what they need now for temple worship, but what they need in the future for teaching and instructing the people in the way of God more perfectly. See, God does exceeding abundant above all we could ask or think. The problem is maybe we don't ask. But not only did God provide a man of understanding plus 18 of his sons, but God also provided in verse 19, Hashabiah and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, his brothers and their sons, 20 more men. And then in verse 20, provided Nethanim, servants, we've got to have them. Why? Because David and the leaders appointed for the service of the Levites 220 Nethanim, and all of them were designated by name. The order of how temple worship goes, David is the one who put all that in order, and now they're following suit to do it that way. God has now provided the resources of people necessary for the ministry of the temple. So what do you do when you have a need, a provisional need? In this case, it was people. Lord, you have given us all this opportunity locally and globally. Lord, we just need more people. We need more laborers. What did Jesus do? He sent them out. Go get some more. In the name of God, in the power of God, walking by faith, go get more laborers for the harvest field. And as a matter of fact, Jesus even instructed on how they were to go, to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. There's a manner in which we conduct ourselves in, our, in the life in our community as we share the gospel and function as ministers in community. So do we just sit and do nothing? No. In this case, I'm going to trust God. I'm asking God, and my feet have to move. I have a personal responsibility to minister to go get laborers. The harvest is plenteous. The laborers are few. That's crisis number one. We didn't have the Levites. But now God supplied the Levites. Crisis number two is one that has to deal with the heart of the matter. Here's the heart of the matter. Ezra has gotten this word from the king, a letter from the king that they can go back. And now they've been given gold and silver beyond counting. We're into the millions and millions of dollars worth of product that they are going to carry. This is a five-month-long journey, and the road between where they are back to Jerusalem is known to be a dangerous trek between wild animals and thieves on the way. And it's recorded here in Ezra 8 that it is a known road for ambush. Here's Ezra's dilemma. The king's granted permission by the good hand of God. The king granted all this. So do you ask the king now for a military escort when you say you're the servant of the Most High God? That's a big dilemma, isn't it? Well, I mean, I look in the New Testament and there were times when Paul had a Roman soldiers around him and he had an escort and bailed him out of a couple of cases where they were about to hang him. So is it wrong to ask for the military escort? In the next book, Nehemiah asked for a military escort. So is it wrong? Well, Ezra, here was Ezra's heart of the matter. I don't want to ask the king for a military escort. Because by testimony, this is of the Lord God of heaven. 
And I want him to know, God did this. And we don't need the escort to get there from here. What a step of faith. This is bold. This is way bold. So facing this reality, Ezra 8, 21. When you have a need for the help for the right way, what do I do? Ezra then, he said, I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him the right way for us and our little ones and our possessions. He declares a fast. Now, this word fasting has taken on a lot of shape in our culture because fasting gets bundled into our workout regiments of intermittent fasting, so we lose weight. We fast from electronics in order to put away phones for a few hours to focus on something else. I'm not talking about that type of fasting. This type of fasting, I want to look at a scriptural understanding of fasting. In fasting, in Psalm 35, let's get a working definition from the Bible. He says in Psalm 35, 13, but as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting. In Psalm 69, 10, it says, When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting. This is not something where I afflict pain upon myself in order to impress God. When we fast, we are not choosing to eat and be in the normal uh, activity of food two, three times a day like we normally would do, satisfying our flesh, because the one thing that matters the most, I have to hear from God on this thing. I want to fellowship with God. I want to hear from God. I need God's answer on this matter. In this case, Ezra calls for this fast. We need God's help to get us from here to there without a military escort. Because without God, we're toast. And all this stuff the king's given, it will go away. God has to come through here. And so the only thing that matters, and many of you can understand this because you've been in a crisis moment. I've been there a few times in my life. Crisis moments where people are always telling you, hey, you need to eat something, you need to eat something. And the last thing you want to do is eat something. You're grieving, you're sorrowing, you're concerned. You've got things you're more focused on. I just want to hear from God. That's the only thing right now that matters. I remember when... Uh, my pastor friend that I went to work for in Florida passed away. And for about a month, food did not taste good to me at all. Because the only thing I wanted to know is, God, what do you want me to do next? And I was growing a little thin, and Amy was like, you almost look sick. I wasn't sick, I was healthy as a horse, but I looked thinner than normal. And she's like, but it, guys, I'm going to just tell you at that moment, Food didn't sound very appealing. The only thing I wanted to know is, God, what do you want me to do now? And I think about the times in my life where choosing, choosing even to fast, because the only thing that matters, I need to hear from God on this matter. Let me give you some biblical examples. It was Hannah that was fasting year by year. Because the question we're going to ask, and this always comes up, well, fasting, how long do you fast? Is it like for a day or two or a week or how many meals? And do I get to drink water or not? And we start wanting to regiment all the rules. So let me just walk you through this. 
In the Bible with fasting, you won't find any rules on how long, how many, how often, all the stuff. So let me give you an example. Hannah, who was longing to have a baby, prayed and fasted yearly, every year, until God answered that prayer. There was sorrow and bereavement in the day that King Saul died and David and the rest of his men, they fasted the rest of the day. When sickness afflicted David's son, David fasted for seven days pleading with God for that child who did not live, by the way. When grievous sin was present, in the book of Ezra, we'll see later, fasting will happen again in this book, not just for the trek back, but because of grievous sin being present. When seeking favor and powerful, from powerful authorities like Esther did, she called for a fast for three days because she was going to go into the presence of the king. And if it wasn't going to go well for her, that would have been the end of her life. She needed favor. Jesus instructs that because of the bridegroom being present with the disciples, you don't fast when the bridegroom's here, but when the bridegroom is away, you fast. And so how often do we fast longing for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there a time stamp to that? We, long, we fast until He comes. When sending out missionaries in Acts chapter 13, the, the elders and pastors of the church, they fasted. When establishing new elders and churches, Paul fasted. When planting churches, Paul fasted again. Often. He said that in fastings often. Well, how often? I don't know. Often. But what was the point here in Ezra? When the testimony of the Lord is at stake, they fasted again. Lord, what do you want us to do? This is, this is dangerous. This is expensive. What do we do? And Ezra 8.22, For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road. Why? Because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him. But his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. And that was the testimony. God's testimony is at stake. And so they fasted. Scripture makes it clear. What is the right fast and wrong fast? There's something here to learn. As New Testament believers, is it right for us to be fasting? Absolutely. How often? When? What circumstance? Well, I just gave you a few examples but the details of the how often and the when and all those things, that's when you desire to hear from the Lord, that's when. But let me explain from Isaiah 58 how God sees this fasting thing. In Isaiah 58 verse 3, a right fast and wrong fast are represented. The question of the people in the day was, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? That would be this, the seemed assumption here. Is we've gone through all this affliction of self and yet it seems like it comes unto nothing. But listen to God's response. In fact, the day of your fast you find pleasure and exploit all your labors. What did he just tell them? You're fasting over here saying you want to hear from me, but meanwhile, now you're exacting all of your pleasures. You're still doing all the pleasurable things you ever wanted to do anyway. 
It didn't change. You're not seeking the Lord. You're depriving yourself from food. For what? And he said, and not only that, you're making your laborers, your, your employees, you're being hard on them. When you say you're wanting God to do something in your life. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness and, and you will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is this the fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? Remembering what the fasting looked like in Old Testament days, they would spread out a, a sackcloth and actually adorn in sackcloth. It's like a burlap sack. It's very scratchy and itchy. It's very uncomfortable. And they would sit down in ashes because it's just a, it's symbolic of, of destitute. And they would often put ashes on their head and just cover their head with dust. I am the dust of the earth. I'm, an, I'm nothing. So it's all this outward expression of humility and I need you, God. And meanwhile, he said, and you're wagging your finger at each other and you're strife among each other and you're being hard on your employees. And not only that, then you go out and have all these pleasures and you're expecting me to receive that as a fast. No. And so in verse 6 it says, is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke. Now just think of these in terms of, of ministry to people in need, ministry of people who don't have the gospel, people that are enslaved to sin and don't have resources to be able to take care of themselves. Think of the fast that he's describing this way. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you're to bring your house to your house the poor who are cast out, when you see the naked and you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh, that's the fast, God says, that I accept. And then your light will break forth like the morning, and your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. This is what illuminates the Lord and brings the glory of the Lord to be present, to be seen is when that kind of thing happens. Then, verse 9, you'll call and the Lord will answer. And you'll cry and He'll say, Here I am. And if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, now listen to the fruit. All these if statements. Then your light shall dawn in the darkness. That's revival, isn't it? Ezra's day, they're experiencing the revival that's, that God has for them. This light comes on in a dark spot, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. And in verse 11, it says, The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones, and you'll be like a watered garden. What does a watered garden do? It produces fruit over and over. And he said, and you'll be like a spring of water. You're that refreshment to that thirsty soul. And those waters do not fail. Why? Because the refreshment to the thirsty soul is the Word of God. And you're continually ministering the Word of God. And what's happening? The bonds of the, the, the ones in bondage are now loosed. And the people who have needs, their needs are being met. And God says, now that as an acceptable fasting. See, the problem was all the outward adorning of afflicting myself in the sackcloth and ashes and yet not taking care of the things around me that God would take care of, that makes no sense. That's a total disconnect. 
but too fast. And I want to hear from you, Lord. And I want to know the right way for us and for our little ones and for our stuff. And meanwhile, I want to take care of those that are in bondage and those who have needs. And I'm not going to afflict the poor. And they'll have this complete disconnect of, I want to hear from God, but my response to people is not loving people. This outward expression as I love the Lord, but not love people. And Jesus brings the two of those perfectly together. Love God and love people. And this is the acceptable fast. So does it mean we deprive ourselves of food? Yeah. Fasting looks that way. And some of you cannot do that because of medical conditions or something. It's possible you may not be able to do that. I'm not here today to speak to all the exceptions. I'm showing you in Scripture, fasting is a part of the Christian life. Those times in life when we have great need. Lord, what way do you want us to go? Lord, we need your provision. Lord, we need help. And when all these things that we just described from Isaiah and our heart attitude towards the Lord and towards people, and God just said, when I hear, if, 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 then this is what I will do in your life. And here's what happens at the end of Ezra, chapter 8. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. What an incredible story. They're going to take a five-month journey with north of $5 million worth of gold and silver on a very dangerous highway, no military escort, and they're going to make it to Jerusalem safe and sound to the glory of the Lord. So what do you do in times of need? Do we just sit and do nothing? We pray and sometimes be still and wait for God to show the way. But if you watch what Ezra just did as well, when we had a need for Levites, you trust God and go pursue some Levites. When we need the right way for us, we fast and trust God. And we go. And we don't know how this is going to go, but we're going to trust God every step of the way. And then when you arrive safe, you look back and say, the good hand of God was upon us, and you give thanks. And I bet every one of us in this room this morning can look back at moments where you didn't know which way to go, and God's hand was on you, and He directed your way. And you can stop this morning and say, Lord, thank you. And maybe you're in that spot today, you have a great need, and you don't know which way to go. And you need a provision. And maybe you need healing in your body. And maybe you're needing to trust God today for whether it's physical healing or whether it's God's to be with you and walk you with you through that. And God's answer to you may be, my grace is sufficient for you and I will walk with you through this. He may choose to take away the affliction. He may just choose to walk with you through it. But either way, the Lord is with you. What is your need? 
And what is your response to that need today? And I invite you to bow your head with me this morning. The scripture makes it clear that we are all needy people. We need the Lord for his salvation. We can't save ourselves. And maybe that's your greatest need this morning is recognizing I cannot save myself. And if that's your story, let me just tell you today how you can become a a Christ follower and know today that you have eternal life in Jesus Christ. That you can know that your sin is forgiven. It's simply by faith. By faith. You've never seen Jesus and neither have I. But the scripture declares that Jesus is the Son of God. That He came from heaven to earth. That Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago to pay my sin debt and yours in full for all of mankind. And when He died on that cross, forgiveness is in His name. Because the debt is paid in full. But He didn't stay on the cross. He went to the grave and three days later He rose from that grave alive. Because He's God. He is victor over sin on the cross. He's also victor over death. Because He resurrected. So by faith trusting in Him, the person of Jesus Christ Himself, when we believe and confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we are saved. We're literally saved from sin that separates us from God. We're saved from the judgment of sin, which is eternal separation from God. And maybe this morning, this is the decision of faith that needs to be made in your heart. The greatest need you have is to be saved. This is a conversation you have with God yourself, by faith, to call upon His name and ask Him, Lord, I believe you. I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and I ask you to save me. We all come in this room today with needs. Need for protection, provision, wisdom. We need God's guidance. We need God's strength. We need His help. We need His comfort. We need the Lord. What do we do when we have needs? In Ezra's day, a great man of faith trusts God. But he still had to get his feet moving. It was a walk of faith. What is the next step that God would have you take by faith? And maybe today you need to set aside some time and choose a time that I am, I am going to fast and put away things that satisfy my flesh because the only thing I want to know, i got to hear from God on this matter and nothing else matters. Father, meet us in this moment and draw us close to yourself that we might have an intimate relationship with you just like we see with Ezra having that with you that he would know your hand was on his life. He could see the answer to prayer and experience the power of the living God. And I pray that this morning for every person in this room and that, Lord, we might, as a church, trust you going forward with the things that you have in all of our lives, corporately and individually. And that, Lord, today, 
we might be a people who worship you and give thanks for the way you've provided already for all of our lives. But Lord, we also trust you for the needs that we have today. And may we commit those things to you, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray all of this. Amen.